0: Hot. Welcome to Around Town, where we seek to discover insights into places, events, topics, and issues that you want to know about in our great city. I'm your host, Nick Burkfeld, with producer Chuck Luck. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Michelle McCord, the superintendent of Friendship Schools. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. What's your connection to Lubbock? the most obvious
1: connection I have to Lubbock is that my husband and I moved out here almost 13 years ago. I accepted a job working for Friendship ISD. I was originally the Assistant Superintendent of Administrative Services, whatever that means, for Friendship ISD, and then later became the superintendent. But I have another connection to Lubbock. I, in 1984, came to Texas Tech University as a freshman in college. Then I didn't end up graduating from here because I went home. There were some rocky places in there (laughs) in the middle. Maybe I didn't commit myself to my studies like I needed to. Loved it here and then eventually ended up moving back home for different reasons. Graduating with my bachelor's degree with now what is part of the Texas Tech system. I graduated from Midwestern State University.
0: What were your first impressions of the city of Lubbock?
1: What I remember about Lubbock in the 1980s is how friendly the people were. I'm from a small town in Texas and I've lived... Lots of places around Texas, but there's a graciousness about the people here that always stuck with me. When we came back to Lubbock, I interviewed for the job. I thought, wow, it's the people. Anywhere you go, whether it's grocery shopping, clothes shopping, restaurant, it's like everyone has been trained by Chick-fil-A and they're not being inauthentic. Really, it sets Lubbock apart from any place else that I've ever lived, big or small.
0: What was your pathway to education?
1: It's a long and winding tale, but your experiences shape who you are. I got a bachelor's degree in psychology, a minor in Spanish. What was the wisdom behind that? There wasn't any wisdom behind it. I knew I needed a degree. My parents, that was like a non-negotiable. I got the degree. Here's what I was able to do with it. I was living in Wichita Falls at the time, applied for several jobs, never got a call back an interview anything. I had a friend of a friend who was a coach in Archer City, Texas. So I had this minor in Spanish, and they had one Spanish teacher in Archer City. He said, our Spanish teacher is retiring. Would you have any interest in that position? I said, well, yes, because My job at that point was a part-time cashier at a health food store. And there's nothing wrong with that except for I was really needed full-time work. So I was like, absolutely. Well, back in those days, there was no such thing as what we call now alternative certification. There was what you called an emergency certification And it was an emergency for the children, for me. You did all the coursework. I never really aspired to be a teacher, but I found myself teaching Spanish. I never really felt like I was very good at it. What I thought was, this is okay, but I don't know if I want to do this the rest of my life. I said that to myself a lot, not just about that job. So I had an opportunity to go to work at a physical rehabilitation hospital there in Wichita Falls, Texas, and I worked in the Department of Neuropsychology. I was a psychometrist. Now I think you have to have a specific license for that. Back then you didn't, you just worked under the supervision of a neuropsychologist. So I did psychological and neuropsychological assessment, just administered the test, of course, didn't interpret anything, found that I liked it. It's like, wow, all of these young professionals that were also working there, they had like a lot more figured out than I did. And they had these advanced degrees, all of these things. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I could do that. Also, this hospital had a tuition reimbursement. So I went back to school. That was my second time to go back to school. You'll see a pattern form here. I got my master's degree in counseling. Then through the years, I ended up leaving that hospital, going into private practice with a psychologist and a neuropsychologist. And as I continued to work on my licensure, I worked with them administering these assessments. Then I finally got licensed because I was new, inexperienced, and I really don't know how health insurance panels work now, but back then you had to be selected to be on a panel and they only took a certain number in each field. Somehow I didn't make the list on any of those. And again, I was new. My clientele, my caseload, you didn't have to be on an insurance list to see People with Medicaid. We also had a contract with Child Protective Services to see children who'd been removed from the home and parents who had had their children removed from the home. We also had a contract with what back then was called the Texas Rehabilitation Commission. It's not called that now, I don't know what it's called, but basically it was for people who had maybe a disability of some sort that could be psychological, like depression, anxiety, trying to get them a skill. What I found was that almost every client that I had was a woman or a child. The woman was a young woman, typically, typically unmarried, living in poverty, had grown up in poverty when I was probably about 30 by then. I don't know how I managed to have all that training and get to the point where I was professionally and not realize until I got there that not everybody's experience had been like mine. Remember, leave it to beaver And the cleavers, we weren't perfect, but it was kind of like that. My parents and two older sisters, the only thing I ever heard was, you can do anything if you work hard and study hard. You can be whatever you want to be. These young women, most of them had been abused, either physically or worse. And then they were repeating the cycle of abuse. Not necessarily at their own hand, but they were getting themselves involved in unhealthy relationships, Oftentimes, I went to see my clients in jail or they would come to the office, but I didn't understand. I was like, how is this happening? I was just fascinated by they thought so poorly of themselves. They wanted the best for their children. A lot of these women had access to training programs Now, not usually a four-year degree, but like they'd go to LVN school or something like that. There was a way to make a living wage. I'm thinking they'd grown up in poverty, so they would have qualified for payroll grants or needs-based things. And when I would talk to them about those things, I might as well have been saying, Hey, let's go live on Mars. I've got a rocket ship. Let's go. It's going to be awesome. They're like, What are you talking about? Like, I can't do that. There are some success stories in there, but not very many. One, I felt embarrassed that I didn't know when I say weren't like me, just didn't have that experience. One of the young ladies, she had two children. She was going to LVN school. She couldn't afford her car insurance or her TAGS registration, got pulled over, got a ticket or several. She had to sit it out in jail. I'd never heard of it. Then guess what? She got kicked out of nursing school because she missed too many days. I eventually, just through the course of several years, just felt the call to go into the public school system and shout from the rooftops and tell either young women or parents or whatever that, guess what? This public education, this is for you and you can do it. I started out as a counselor. I never aspired to be a principal or a superintendent. I just took one step after another. I found myself in this role.
0: You'd mentioned your parents. This can-do attitude What were the aspects about your own life that prepared you for this journey for becoming superintendent?
1: I didn't experience poverty. I certainly didn't experience wealth either. My dad, his way out of poverty, interestingly enough, was through athletics. He was a really good athlete. He graduated from holiday. His parents, I don't think you would call them sharecroppers, but they leased their dryland land. In the 1940s and 50s, when the worst drought ever was in Wichita and Archer County, they didn't have indoor plumbing, but they had plenty to eat and all that. They didn't see themselves as poor. Really valued education, really high expectations in terms of grades, but more so than grades, it was your behavior. According to my parents, you should always be able to get 100 in conduct is what it was called back then. Didn't always get 100 in conduct. They were just really hardworking Christian family, and they didn't, I don't think, protect me from poverty, really, or their intention wasn't to do that. Somehow that was what happened, because I grew up in this town where there wasn't wealth, but we all looked and sounded like each other. It was not diverse from any sense of the word.
0: And we'll be right back with Michelle to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. We're speaking with Dr. Michelle McCord, the superintendent of Friendship Schools. Previously, you had mentioned when you moved into education, it was not to seek leadership. How do you think about leadership and the journey that you went on?
1: It was not until I started working on my doctorate, and I was already at that time an assistant superintendent, that I began to really think about leadership strategically or deliberately, I really had not ever seen myself as a leader or thought about leadership really is influence. I had another aha moment like I had when I was working in private practice about the notion of, oh, not everybody's like me, nor do we want them to be. You know, I'd always thought of leaders as just someone that's been born or captain of a team a general, something of that sort. But like anything else, it's a skill that when practiced and honed and you're deliberate in it, that you can be better at it. I was an assistant principal, the director of this, or the coordinator of that. And I began to think about it. It's like, oh, no, you know, I probably was leading, but I wasn't being intentional about it. And one of the things that I found myself really needing to work on, I saw myself as what I would just call a workhorse, that I can really do the work of about four people. And so the people that I was supposed to be leading, I wasn't really leading. I think my motivation was pure, was trying to portray, I'm not too good to do anything. I want to show you by example that I will get this done so that you can see What a hard worker I am. I don't know what I was thinking. I thought it was the right thing to do. And then as I began to really study leadership and reflect on my own behavior, I had really sent the wrong message to my colleagues and to those who were my direct reports, I guess you could say. Inadvertently, by me not allowing them to do any work or empowering them to do work, one, I was not equipping them or empowering them to improve. That was negative. And then the other thing, it certainly wasn't my intention, but I think it was the result, is that I don't trust you to do the work. So let me do it because I can do it best. And again, I really didn't think that, but I think that's the unintended outcome. Then I began to, oh, wait, okay, my job as a leader is, yes, sometimes it's leading by example, but it's being responsive It's being collaborative. It's empowering people through listening and through allowing them to do the work. When you're a little bit of a teensy bit of a control freak, I hope there's no one that knows me listening because they know teensy is a lie. You like to do things because you want it done the way you want it done. When you're empowering other people to do the work, they need to understand why they're doing what they're doing, but they need the freedom on the how to get it done. As long as we reach the intended outcome, you have to let go sometimes of some of those details. And I've learned over the years that, particularly in my role as the superintendent, we have 14 campuses with three new ones under construction, 1,300 employees, 11,160 students. My job as a leader is to be on the balcony, to be looking out into the future, setting direction, vision, empowering other people, coaching up other people, influencing them. That is a struggle for me because I don't like to be on the balcony. I like to be amongst the seats, maybe even under the seats. 30,000 foot view is really not a comfort zone for me. That's good because leadership, Winston Churchill would say, make no mistake. Leadership and popularity are not the same thing. I struggle to be out in the front if you will. But I like it. I find myself here. think that maybe one of the reasons I'm in this role is because I really am an unlikely character in terms of just my background, how I got here, bring a different perspective to public education. Well, I couldn't do it unless I had that background because it's all about the people and the relationships. And I really like to do that, but I have to defend against being in the details of everything. I can't do cast a vision, invest in other people, set the direction for a whole district. And again, I'm not doing that alone. That's a great team. And so I don't have to have the answers. I have to know how to ask good questions.
0: Talk to me about friendship. In my own lifetime, the school district has changed enormously. And under your leadership, it has been one of the fastest growing in the state, an emerging academic and athletic powerhouse What is friendship about? How do you think about it? Friendship was a wonderful place when I
1: arrived 13 years ago. And I think one of the things that draws people to friendship, like it drew me to friendship, the Lubbock, the South Plains area, the genuineness of the people. But the story of friendship is what I think is important. And I don't ever want us to forget it when I say us, friendship. When I came to Friendship, we were celebrating our 75th year as a district. How did it become Friendship? It was four small communities, Hurlwood, Foster, Carlisle, and Wolforth. They came together. They had their own schools, and they built a high school. Some of those elementaries, they continued to operate elementaries, but they came together as one high school because they wanted something better for their kids. And another treasure that we have, we still have the first yearbook. And there's some really heart-wrenching stories in there, poignant stories about how these kids, they came as seniors. They were the senior class. They were like, I think started out with 19 or 20. They talked about sort of leaving there where they had gone to school before, coming together as this group, calling themselves Tigers, kind of the bittersweetness of that so really this standard of excellence was started almost 90 years ago when I became the interim superintendent of friendship so I haven't done anything great it was great when I got there I had known the board president for five years because I'd been assistant superintendent of administrative services. But really, that's code for assistant superintendent of all bad things and all complaints and all things that didn't go well. He meant this tongue in cheek, and he was kidding sort of, but he knew I would understand. I was really scared. And I was really nervous. The guy before me, Dr. Vrunland, he was this big personality in this what you would think of as a born leader he was like, you can do this. I was named interim. We walked into the superintendent's office and I was like, no, no, I'm still the assistant super." No, no, you're the superintendent. You're going to move in here. And he said, the only advice I will give you is don't run it in the ditch. Those were the first words he said to me. And I was like, OK, message received. It wasn't like a threat or anything. What I heard him say was, you can do this. This district is a great place. It's never been about one person, never been about one heroic leader. It's about our teachers. The most significant predictor of the educational outcomes of a student outside the influence of the parent is the effectiveness of the teacher, not the superintendent. He knew we had a great system in place. He was really giving me permission to be yourself. You don't need to come in and change anything. Just keep it between the lines. Don't swerve. Don't make any sudden moves. Friendship is just a great place with great people. The friendship community, it's not a city. doesn't have a city council, doesn't have a mayor. But who we are and what we believe in our history, we want to keep that. If you're not deliberate about your direction of keeping a small town feel like Lubbock does when it's not really a small town. You have to be strategic and deliberate
0: in that or it goes away. And we'll be right back with Michelle to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. Our guest today is Dr. Michelle McCord, the superintendent of Friendship Schools. Looking back on the 13 years that you've been the superintendent of Friendship, how do you think of way markers or milestones of that experience?
1: You know, there's so many achievements that have been earned by our students and our staff. So those would be too many to count and would also leave out something really important. But one of the things that I think of is our growth. You know, you really can't grow as a school district and be successful if you don't have a supportive community. So really, behind every successful school district, you'll find a supportive community. We've continued to grow. Going from one high school to two after 80 some odd years is a lot. When we opened the second high school, We're going to have two valedictorians, two salutatorians. The opportunities for kids doubles, basically. With this growth comes the responsibility of the expense of it. We're changing a lot. I tell myself, yes, we're adding campuses. We're adding lots of things. We're making changes. That doesn't change who we are and our shared beliefs about we're going to put the learners first We want kids to have a passion for learning. People are the most important resource, all of those kinds of things. That doesn't change. I think I'm most proud and excited about that. But we have added some really cool things like plumbing. They were like, kids aren't going to sign up for plumbing. What we're doing is equipping kids for the future and for the workforce. Ultimately, we need to pay attention to our local needs. Lots of building going on in the area think the average age of a plumber, this was a few years ago. So unless the statistic has changed, they hadn't gotten any younger. I mean, they were like 70, and that was several years ago. So we need plumbers. We need nurses' aides. We need pharmacists. And so we've added lots of programs like that, and we're not the only ones that have it, to try to meet the needs of our community, equip kids
0: for the future, What is it like to try to create this diversity of extracurricular activities for all of these students? What's the effort that goes into it? I'm also thinking about unified sports as the program and the benefits there.
1: One of the ways that we often forget about, but it really is amazingly effective, is ask the children. Sometimes... We have the best of intentions, but we forget to ask those we serve because we think, oh, well, they're children. Well, they may be children, but some of the children, you can't see my air quotes, you know, are 18 years old. Listening to them, serving them, and then we gauge interest that way. We have to pay attention to, of course, what we can afford. Again, the community is very generous, but you have to staff it and you might have to have uniforms and all those things. And there are some other things that are very popular that we have our eye on. One of the newer things that we added a few years ago is eSports. I knew that kids loved video games, gaming. But here's what I didn't know, is that young people, they like to watch kids playing video games. And I guess it's not a whole lot different than being a spectator at another kind of sport? I don't know. But I was like, you're kidding. And so you can get a scholarship to play esports in college. And so we started esports. That is engaging a student and giving them a chance to showcase their talents where likely they have not found a way to connect before. There's not a lot of travel in esports. A lot of those competitions are location independent we played in the state championship for rocket league the first year we had esports as a class they were up on stage here in friendship and we had a crowd so you know we're screaming and yelling and cheering but I went up and spoke with a young man before competition started I mean they were all just beaming he was like my mom lives in Alaska and she gets to watch me participate in esports. And so it was like, oh, my gosh, that's so amazing. You don't even really think about that. And so when you were really starting to think about virtual sorts of things, another sort of a unique thing that we started offering last year is called unified sports. We have unified track. And I'm going to do a terrible job of explaining exactly the way it works. But this is a UIL sanctioned sport with a twist. And the twist is that you have athletes who are already in your athletic program. I know one rule is you can't be a UIL track athlete and participate in unified track. So it has to be something that's not your sport. And so you have those athletes, but then we have students who qualify for the special education program. These are students that participate in Unified Track, and they're competing in the same events. Long jump is one of the things. So you have a student who is an athlete who does not qualify for special education services, and then you have a student who does qualify for special education. So often they have a cognitive impairment, intellectual delay, sometimes a physical impairment of some sort, We do discus, shot put, long jump, and then lots of foot races. It is the best, just like sometimes sports doesn't bring out the best of our competitive spirit, Unified brings out the best in the athlete, whether it's the one who has had to overcome some cognitive challenges or physical challenges. It is amazing for the athlete who really has probably never thought about What it's like to have a challenge. I mean, they have challenges, but not physical or intellectual. The parents, the fans, you'll see in a race, your competition falls down in the lane next to you. You stop. You help them up. And nobody makes them do that. It just like brings out the best in everyone. The spectators, everybody cheers on everyone. Oh, my gosh. I really can't say who gets more out of it. Any of the athletes, the unified team. But let me tell you something. They want to
0: win. There's nothing wrong with wanting to
1: win. It's the best. It's only good. Only
0: good. Michelle, that's all the time that we have today. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. It really has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Around Town. I'm your host, Nick Burkfeld. This show was produced by Chuck Luck. Our guest today was Dr. Michelle McCord, the superintendent of Friendship Schools. Join us next Friday morning at 9 a.m. on 89.1. For more information on Around Town or to listen to previous episodes, visit ttupublicmedia.org.